Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is sponsored by TBR, Book Riot's new subscription service offering tailored book recommendations for readers of all stripes. Been dreaming of a stitch fix for books? Now it's here. Tell TBR about your reading preferences and what you're looking for and sit back while your bibliologist handpicks recommendations just for you. TBR offers plans to receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations by email so there's an option for every budget. Visit mytbr.co slash treat your shelf to sign up today. That's mytbr.co slash treat your shelf. This is the Book Riot Podcast, weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 279. We're recording on Thursday, September 20th. God, September 20th, Rebecca. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. You know, you declared last week that it was fall, and I just need you to know mm. it is 90 degrees here today, <laughs> and I'm angry. Oh, it's fall 50 degrees when I wake up, high of 68. It's great here. It's I'm sorry nice, to hear man. that. I'm sorry this, to hear that. It's it's not nice. We'll we talk again in February when it's raining for 48 straight days. We had eight tornadoes here on Monday. It feels like a swamp. I'm just like, I hope there's nothing really bad in any of these agenda items mm. that we're going to talk about today because I am just ungenerous. I've got follow-up um, that I didn't put in the show Great. notes here so we can start there. One is... Um, impromptu Jeff mini rant, fugue state monologue about podcasting and not narrative <laughs> audio. Well, oh, I had blocked that. Yeah, from memory yeah, you, you get passed out. Uh, probably wise. That, that's your uh, that's your nervous system trying to protect itself from uh, unwanted input. Anyway, mm-hmm. so I was reading. So this was about Malcolm Gladwell and um, some of the Penelope people breaking off from Penelope to, to do their own thing. I was reading at a position of strength. Turns out. Not so much. The Penelope is getting out of the content creation business and just doing boring podcast backend stuff like hosting and ad services. Necessary stuff, but not that exciting. So that's not a good sign. So if Gladwell wanted to keep doing something, I guess he had to do his own thing. And I read this week, and I actually tweeted about it. That's how strongly I felt, or confused I was. (laughs) That BuzzFeed is laying off most of its um, original podcast production staff. Um, notably mm. the women who, um, uh, the ones I have followed, I don't listen to them every week, but I know a lot of people love them and I like their show and I dip into it. If there's a guest, I listen to Roxanne Gay's interview with them, which is great. Roxanne said is one of the, she says it's her favorite interview she's ever done, which is, I'll put that link oh, in wow. the show notes to that one, but they, they got laid off and they're canceling the show apparently. Now maybe this is in flux, but this is what I've heard so far. And so I, maybe, maybe I, I read this dead wrong, which is there's, there's weakness here about podcasting. Um, in certain degrees that, so anyway, I thought that was interesting for those of you who listened to another round. I I'm sorry. I, uh, it's one of the great shows too, hosted by two black women. Um, Buzzfeeds, a lot of their original podcast content really was great about having different kinds of voices on the air. So that, that's part's doubly sad to see. I can't figure out, this is what I tweet, but I can't figure out now. I know what our show does in terms of downloads. You know, you never know what other shows do. But if you just look at like the Apple ratings as a multiplier of ours, if you could get infer from mm-hmm. theirs, they have like 10 times, more than 10 times the Apple ratings. Now, that doesn't necessarily uh, translate into a difference in podcast scale. But if, even if it's half what I think, I don't understand how it can't be a business. I don't, I don't get it. I mean, maybe if you're a BuzzFeed and you want to be the new NBC, like, podcasting hasn't shown that you can do there's not a netflix of podcasting right there's just not a big new thing maybe it's there's a bunch of little niches but for a big company like buzzfeed or a company like penelope that's trying to be a big company it's just not worth it to be in the podcast creation business because the scale just isn't there and people will say well serial well right but serial like the whole like a whole season of serial which i guess season three just started is like Two million people listening, which again is a mm-hmm. lot. But if that's the top end of the market, there aren't big companies to be built around that. Uh, so I think I right. just wanted to amend and maybe reframe 
that. Anything, any thoughts there, Rebecca? Have you ever listened to another round? Do you know the show at all? I haven't. I'm like one of my deep, dark secrets. Uh, You've said it but nine times. You're not dark. You told us before. (laughs) Yeah, right. Okay. One of my not so secret shames, I guess, is that I'm like not a great podcast listener. I will, I like audiobooks. I have limited time that I spend Mm. putting audio content into my ears because I, you know, I work at home. I don't have a commute. I'm not in the car that much. Uh, So, yeah, I'm just, I have not listened to another. Anyway, it's interesting. I, that BuzzFeed's getting out of podcasting where you think, you know, BuzzFeed is is supposed to be the poster child for new media, right? If anyone's doing it right, BuzzFeed's doing it. And so uh, Proposition A is that. Proposition B is podcasting is hot. So ergo, podcasting plus BuzzFeed should be a thing that works. And to see a counter signal to that is really interesting uh, to me personally. Yeah, I did think one of the more interesting notes in the piece yesterday that we were talking about is that they're shifting into focus, a, a big focus on video. Yeah. And I'm really interested in what that's going to look like. There's a new series on Netflix. I think maybe there's eight episodes called Follow This, mm. that, that each episode is like 15 minutes that follows a BuzzFeed reporter going after a story. Um, I binged those in like, you know, a Friday, Saturday. Um, they, that was really interesting. Vox has also got an interesting thing happening on Netflix. So I think if they're focusing on video yeah. on a large scale like that, I understand the pivot, if you will, to video. If they're thinking about, you know, like people consuming like sort of consuming video on their phones while in transit, the way that we consume podcasts <laughs> right. while we're moving about the world, that I have a harder time getting my head around. I don't know anyone yet who's been like stoked that they could like, like my, this is a video podcast mm-hmm. I can watch, or I'd rather, you know, watch a video while I'm commuting, like a video talk show while I'm commuting than listen to a podcast. I haven't heard that. I could be wrong. Um, I'm curious about what this pivot to video is going to look like. And I would guess it's going to have to be on a bigger scale, like for things like actual Netflix series, not like, you know, videos that they're just producing and releasing themselves and hoping people watch on mobile. Yeah. I mean, if you can get one of the big fish in the video platform wars to bite, then Netflix is the Hulu's. I don't want to name them now, but you know who I'm thinking about, you know, then that way you have distribution and funding and you don't have to go out and sell ads for the thing. You know, Netflix is in they're all in acquisition phase. They're all in content acquisition phase. So that makes sense to me. You know, the pivot to video we were hearing about, I don't know, sort of in the pre-mashable acquisition, this is Real Insider Baseball for those of you who don't follow this kind of stuff, but like uh, the pivot to video that happened a few years ago in the media space writ large was a, we're going to have our own videos on our site and sell ads against it and have it on YouTube. That didn't go anywhere for reasons Mm -hmm. that are beyond worth going into here. But there's a reason you don't see big media companies touting their YouTube channel. They might, you may make their your video available there, but that Vox is not pushing you to YouTube. They're making content for Netflix. Buzzfeed, Vice is making content for HBO, Vice TV, TV and things (laughs) like that. So you're getting pulled up. You're having to pull up into the larger scale things, and I, I just think it's interesting that. That podcasting for all the talk and all the prolification, and there's, as I said, there's a, ro- a lot of really good podcasts out there, but the audiences aren't that great, especially if you're a multi-billion dollar ambition. You have multi-billion dollar ambitions as a media company. For us, we don't. I mean, hey, I would take it if someone gave I it would to take us. That, but yeah, that's not what we imagine ourselves to do. So we don't have to jettison things that are profitable but lower scale. Now, I don't. Were they losing money? Was it just to reorganize? I, I don't know. But I thought that was interesting there. Another follow-up, um, I asked you all to um, email about, if you, ha- if you had better, a better sense of the nuanced uh, UK book-buying market, especially in regards to foils and Waterstones, a couple of people emailed in to say that Waterstones is like Barnes & Noble, maybe a little bit nicer, but it has, it's, a, it's a little more corporate antiseptic. It's not, you know, it's, it's, it's not an o- operating room, but it's, you know, you, you know what I'm talking about. And a couple of people are trying to find American analogies for foils. And the one that hit closest to home for me, even though the, the, there's not as many of these as there are, are foils, but they said it's like if uh, Barnes & Noble bought Powell's, which mm-hmm. makes sense. Especially, I guess, there's yep. a big one in Charing Cross in central London, uh, 114 Charing, Charing Cross Road. Um, that's not, again, it's not quite as big as the Powell's here in Portland, but it has a similar kind of mind share for book nerds in the U.K., Powell's doesn't have, I don't even, Powell's has three branches here in Portland and one in the airport. And there used to be one in Chicago, I think. I don't know if there's any others, but if there were, say, three more Powell's branches in a couple big cities, that would be foils. So 
I, there was a Powell's in Chicago? Yes. I went there a million years ago. I mean, when I was like huh. 15. So okay, I was saying it was gone by the time yeah. I went there. It was, I think up in, uh, I don't remember now. Uh, anyway, um, so I thought that was interesting. So that, that's, thank you for, for writing in and, and translating that to us. So I guess, I don't know if that adds or subtracts anything from our discussion of Waterstones buying foils. I think, I think what it does is suggest how many players there aren't to buy <laughs> if you're trying mm-hmm. to get big. And second, that foils has more of a warm, fuzzy feeling to it um, than I thought, but also the scale is, you know, it's, it's lower than I thought it was. So thanks uh, to that. Let's do our first sponsor. The Book Rat Podcast is sponsored today by Rule by Ellen Goodlett. Zophie has spent her entire life trekking through the outer reaches with her band of travelers. That's a capital T, travelers. She would do anything to protect the band, her family, but no one can ever find out how far she's already gone. Akela was raised in the eastern reach, surrounded by whispers of rebellion and abused by her father. Desperate to escape, she makes a decision that threatens the whole kingdom. Ren grew up in Colonia, serving as a lady's maid and scheming her way out of the servants' chambers. But one such plot could get her hung for treason if anyone ever discovers what she's done. When the king summons the girls, they arrive expecting arrest or even execution. Instead, they learn the truth. They are his illegitimate daughters, and one must become his new heir. But someone in Colonia knows their secrets, and that someone will stop at nothing to keep the sisters from their destiny. That's Rule by Ellen Goodlett. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. Okay. All right. You want to do follow-up? Yeah. Yeah, keep the follow-up train rolling. In a statement um, just earlier this week, Simon & Schuster has called Bob Woodward's book Fear, which we talked about last week, it got off to a gangbuster start. They are saying it is the best-selling book in Simon & Schuster's company history. It sold more than 1.1 million copies through its first week in all formats, including orders from consumers that are currently unfilled due to extraordinary demand. So they ran out. Basically. Mm-hmm. Um, the publisher cited the sales as marking the largest figure for any title in their history, and it had revised its on-sale date figures to 900,000. 900,000 copies sold on one Was it 750 we said last week? Day. day one was 750, oh, I think. That's I think right. it was 750, which is, I think 750 is what, um, what Happened did in the first week. Yeah. Um, wow. So Bob Woodward big deal here. Um, the book has sold more than 339 copies at the, let's see, as of what was this? This was on September 18th. Bookscan had indicated that it had sold more than 339 copies at outlets that report to the service, um, which is roughly 80% of us book sales. Interesting. Um, it's going into a 10th printing. I was in my local branch of pals yesterday and they had a stack of copies. Like you can get them. I think that helps the sales, right? Like you walk in and get them funny how that works. Um, I was anyway, I mean, that's when I, I, uh, impulse bought one week of release, um, in Barnes and Noble when I was running errands. And, Mm. you know, I was thinking about like, I was trying to think back to what other big books would Simon and Schuster have had. Like when I can think, when I think about things that have gone really big. Yeah. In the last 10 years, I couldn't, or even in the last, you know, five or six, none of the titles that were available to my memory easily that were big, well, big uh, titles. Stephen King is Simon Schuster. Um, so he mm. sells big, but kind but of like, consistently large, but not huge or right, almost this viral right. kind of thing that's going on with fear. Right. Which is like that large, but not huge is an interesting distinction here because mm. the word that Jonathan Karp, who's the um, president and publisher of Simon and Schuster used for these sales of fear is huge. huge. And so now I wonder if this, like, I wonder what the ongoing tale of these yeah. sales is going to be like. Was it everybody who was interested picked one up pretty quickly? Um, or will it continue to gain steam? Because if it gains steam, are the Simon and Schuster folks all getting a bonus oh. like Random House people did when Fifty Shades yeah. of Grey was huge? Uh, I think it's possible. Um, or, you know, they're going to have a nice holiday season there. <laughs> yeah, we talked Schuster about it last could. week that since it's Woodward, it has, um, you know, the finally gravitas as the show title mm-hmm. was. I wonder if that helps helps not just the, the near-term legs, but is this a historical document type of a book right. where I don't think necessarily the Michael Wolf or the Amros or whatever are historical type books. I think the historical type book advance goes towards the kind of number you get around the Obama's book deal, right? That's 65 mm-hmm. million for mm-hmm. six books. Right. Over. Like they're planning on that book selling for decades. 
Um, right. I think this is the, I mean, how many, I would be curious to know how many copies of all the president's men did it sell between like 1990 and 2015, sort of before it got the, right. the, the, the next bump, probably a lot, right? I mean, it, it mm-hmm. it's in print, it sells and audio and all the things along the road. Well, so, right. That's a cultural, you know, that's a piece of cultural history that people still refer to. And I think you're right that fear is set up to potentially be one of those same kinds of reference mm-hmm. points that, you know, for a decade or more than that, um, we look back and it will continue to sell. It will continue to be a thing that people refer to about the particular, you know, what it was like the first couple of years uh, of the Trump administration. Did you, and who did knows you, what's going to happen next? Did you see, I haven't seen anywhere, any word about what the advance for the book was? I was wondering that mm-hmm. about three seconds ago. Right. Also, I didn't, um, I, I don't, don't remember hearing much in the no. run-up to the book. Like there was a Bob Woodward's writing a book about mm-hmm. Trump, but I don't recall seeing anything about the advance. That's the, a good the gamesmanship and up. the political economy of a, a leaking advance numbers is super interesting to me. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm guessing Woodward and his agent and Simon Schuster and their long. I don't know. Is all all the presidents men an SNS title? I don't know. I would guess it probably oh, I have is. No idea. Usually they don't. You know, especially nonfiction people don't bounce around, but. Sometimes these things leak and sometimes they don't. And why and when they leak is fascinating. I mean, if it doesn't go to auction, there's fewer ears to hear and so um, fewer lips to to blab. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if it's just we didn't hear, whereas the Obama situation, there was multiple people involved. And I think the size of the advance was part of the publicity, you know, like watch for these things going on. And we'll get weird... Like I remember, for, we heard about Yah Jesse's advance for homegoing because it was a million bucks, mm-hmm. and then what's his name? The thing about the fire—I can't remember what's the guy's name. Oh, well, I can't remember oh, his name. What was that book? Oh, this is such an indictment of us and it. <laughs> no, it's an indictment of yeah, it because I, we the called it that fire it was going to be and... forget. Yes, Garth something. Yeah, it's uh, Garth Greenwell. Is that him? Or am I thinking no. of somebody else? The Garth Greenwell is a person, but not, th- this. not this one. It's, it's certainly not Pillars of the Garth. That's a different book entirely. Anyway. Well, <laughs> That's a great book. Yeah, we'll have figured it out. Don't email me. We'll figure it out. You know what we're talking about. It's a literary fiction title about a big fire in New York. Garth I mean, Risk Hallberg. Gar- there it is. Garth Risk Hallberg. Uh, oh, yeah, because we joked about how his middle name is Risk. Um, uh, so anyway, it, we hear about those, and I think those are part of the publicity cycle. And for whatever reason, you think they... they it just didn't happen here. And it's a big selling book and yeah. whatever. I just thought it was interesting. You know, I think that you're right about the Obamas. Usually mm. we get these big advances for fiction or it seems yeah. like they're part of the, the news about the advance is part of the publicity cycle for fiction more often than for nonfiction. And like in the case of the art of fielding, which I'm never going to get over. <laughs> the art of fielding. <laughs> I am never going to get over that. I think that was a little brown title that they spent yeah, like more yep. than a million dollars on the advance for the art of fielding. And before the book had even come out, Little Brown had published an ebook about the making of a bestseller. Like there was this engine around ensuring that that book mm-hmm. was going to sell enough copies to justify having spent a million. That was dollars my early days it. of uh, reading a <sighs> blogging. I remember that. That was a thing that people were talking yeah. about. I like that book. I remember. I mean, I don't know if. I, I didn't like it a million dollars. I wouldn't worth, write a little but... book about making it uh, of all the books no, in the world, but I just like I will never get over that <laughs> per, that like that moment yeah. of like mid two thousands book publicity where it was like we spent a million dollars, we have declared this book a bestseller, and yeah. now let us tell you how we that made it was a that was very much in the era of like the Jonathan Franzens of the world were going to be the next big thing, right? Like these mm-hmm. literary dudes that like wore uh, black glasses yep. and lived in Brooklyn and wrote about white dudes being, you know, literary mm-hmm. with literary aspirations. And actually Edited that was one of my magazines. favorite of that. That was one of my favorite of that genre, frankly, uh, the art of fielding. Cause it's about baseball and Melville, which I mean, both of my hemispheres of my it's brain true. are lighting up about that, but um, <laughs> it was funny. But anyway, that's, that's another, that's, Again, it just, the, the absence of talk about how much money Woodward got for this before this is, was striking, considering yeah, how much it's, it's selling now. Probably a bananas amount of money. And I yeah, did confirm I just now all the president's men is a Simon yeah, and Schuster right. title. So Simon and Schuster knows how much money they've made off. Yeah, they know. Woodward. They know. Um, but I, Woodward's doing all right. I mean, we, a million, you know, if you you can kind of sketch out like probably a couple bucks per title is what his advance or like what the royalties would be. So unless it was less than 2 million bucks, he hasn't earned out yet. Um, which is kind of crazy to think about how many books you have to mm-hmm. sell to earn out in advance. Even you're selling, you know, in your 10th printing in eight days. 
um, anyway there. I'm going to read this. I think I went ahead and put on hold the library. I'm a billion, you know, like mm-hmm. I'm a billion deep. Um, we'll see who caves first, the uh, Multnomah Library hold system or uh, my, my, my wallet. If I stay out of the bookstore, I won't buy it. I hadn't been in a bookstore in a while, and Michelle and the kids and I were walking through piles. I almost went into like some sort of <laughs> weird – like I hadn't been in so long. I was like, oh, I want to buy that. I was like, whoa, 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 calm down. It's like walking into the casino. Yeah, and all was, the bells I knew and it was bad off. when I was in the remainder section, like Capital Gains by Chip Gaines. I was like, I was like, huh? I was like, no, wait, get out! Of, what are you doing? This is terrible. Oh, 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 when you're ready to make any decision, just to like, like, let's make some bad choices. Yeah, I know. Well, because you know, it's that that whole that the Gaines complex I find really fascinating. I know a little bit. I was like, well, for eight bucks, I mean, oh, Jeff, what are you doing? That's not. You don't want that. I was like, I was like, Michelle, we got to get out of here. This is this is a bad situation. <laughs> I'm going to make bad choices. I'm going to make bad. I'm going to eight, eight <laughs> bucks on a Food Network star. <laughs> Uh, HGTV. Oh, so yeah. sorry. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. That was a really <laughs> egregious mischaracter. You know what we should do just to yeah. run the full gamut of our weird yes. shared interests is read Fear and Capital Gains and mm. book club them on the same episode <laughs> of this podcast. That would be pretty, pretty good. I we have <laughs> look Barnes and Noble news. I'm kind of interested in. Yes. Did you? What do you think of this? Or do you want me well, to do the lead, or do you want to do the reaction? You want to be the the the. Who? Well, what do you want to do? I have. I don't know. Too okay. many choices. Um, I'll do the. I'll do the lead okay. here. I'm, I'm interested in this too. So on Wednesday of this week, Barnes and Noble opened one of its prototype bookstores no. in Columbia, Maryland. It's the latest in a series of prototype locations. It's seventeen thousand square feet down from their usual footprint, which is about twenty six thousand square feet. That is so many square. So feet many still. square feet. Um, it's going to stock 35,000 titles. It has contemporary design touches like warm-hued uh, oak bookshelves. There's USB and electricity ports at tables in the cafe area, which a lack of those is a thing that I just heard from a listener about, you know, mm-hmm. complaining about their local Barnes & Noble doesn't yes. have enough plugs available in the cafe. And at the store, there are two large book theaters, which offer customers a 360-degree in-the-round I like that. Experience. I don't even know exactly what that means, I, but I like that phrase. But in the I know round it browsing. made me tingly. That, <laughs> yeah. like, talk to me about three hundred and sixty <laughs> degree book browsing. I mm-hmm. um, the booksellers at the store are going to be equipped with tablets to facilitate immediate customer service. There's not like a giant customer service desk in the middle from what we can see in the picture in this piece. Uh, and there will, they'll also have self-service kiosks so customers can search for books for themselves. There's non-book items like vinyl records and turntables and the usual games and gift items. Uh, but they're giving this a new shot. It's pretty. It is pretty. I like it. Um, so it's a dis- theater of the mind. But there's a link in the show notes. You can see your, your, for yourself how badly we've butchered the description. But it has <laughs> – look, I joke about independent bookstores. Like you have to have wood floors. Like you have to, mm-hmm. right? Wide plain Wide plain wood floors. Wood floors yeah. um, and you also have you know really nice-looking – wood bookshelves. I'm sure there's Ella Fitzgerald pipe through. If they're not, they should, they should pay me for that idea. Um, they've got, they make the cafe friendly for people bringing their laptops and phones and things like that. It has, I don't know how to describe that. Michelle's going to kill me because this is like a thing, in our, <laughs> but it has like exposed, it doesn't have like drop ceilings. Like you can see all the pipes mm-hmm. and wires and things there, like it's an like, industrial uh, feel, yeah, it's like a kind, of a loftily, kind of a lofty mm-hmm. feel to it. I also like Again, I assume the picture they're showing us, you're looking from the front door and it, it really leads you all the way through the, to the back of the store. And then the browsing sections are like on the sides, which feels very yeah, nice. I like that. Like it's very open yeah. and airy. The, the, like the old mode of Barnes and Noble stores where all of the shelves and the tables and everything are like dark, heavy yes. wood. And you have to go through the mazes of shelving to get to anything. It's just like, it feels kind of closed in mm-hmm. and this image looks open and light. I'm into this. Um, I would like to check this out. And I think having smaller footprints, granted 17,000 square feet is still it's a lot. It's not that much smaller. I thought that was weird, feet. right? Yeah. Anyway. Um, and it, But it's a different use of yeah. the space too. Um, I think this is a really... This is an interesting experiment. It's not the thing we're yearning for of Barnes and Noble trying no. like small neighborhood feeling bookstores, but this at least looks like Barnes and Noble has caught up with like some contemporary elements of of design yeah. and of what customers might be wanting to experience. It doesn't look like Ron Burgundy is going to be standing in the corner <laughs> no. being like my library smells of rich mahogany. 
No, it feels. I, I think it looks and feels better. Um, it feels like it's trying to imitate an independent bookstore that's taken over an old industrial space. You know, you know and it kind of like it doesn't fully replicate, but it kind of feels from this image like walking into that Powell's in downtown Portland in some ways. The, yeah, like the long, right. the long lower rectangle tables. Um, the stacks are, you know, there's stacks of books within titles on top faced out. Uh, it doesn't, it just doesn't look like what Barnes and Noble typically looks like. It looks like somebody got a little creative. Yeah. Um, you know, I was thinking about this, looking at this image compared to our, my local Barnes and Nobles, which I think are, are fairly representative where, you know, you, you enter in and then there's the tables at the front and then it's kind of like, I don't know, hedgerows of bookcases Mm-hmm. Uh, like a rabbit worn a bookcase, unless you really want to go somewhere, you're not really invited to go just walk through and see what's there. You're more supposed to stay here or go to the bathroom or go over to the, the cafe. This really draws you through and you can mm-hmm. see a lot more of the inventory just sort of at a glance. Now, of course you have to go back behind shelves to find other kinds of things, but it does, it does, it does feel a little bit more like a showroom, I guess is is the only word I can use to describe it. If you're, if you're around Columbia, Maryland, um, and you happen to Please check go. this out, Please let us know. They, they're planning to open five prototype stores in the fiscal year that ends next April. And then we'll settle on a final concept in 12 to 18 months. I don't know what that means. Are they going to redo all their yeah, stores? That's what I was wondering, too. Is it yeah. a concept for renovations or just for everything that they open going forward or what? But this is... Uh, I don't have any urges to like be down on this particular Barnes & Noble moment. I mean, it look, look, if you're going to call it Barnes & Noble still and basically do Barnes & Noble things in it, this is pretty good. Yeah, I, I think, think so. so. Um, but the the, the, red, the regular uh, footprint of an average Barnes & Noble store says here is 26,000 square feet. So this is like only 50, not even 50% small, I guess close to 50% mm, smaller, yeah. but it's not like radically smaller. Like this would be yeah. a huge indie, right? Like this is like a giant right. indie. 17,000 square feet is like 17 of most indies. Right. And the, <laughs> and I have to say the, the exterior looks modern, but I think the logo's mm-hmm. got to go. That Barnes and Noble logo feels, still feel nineties tastic. Yeah. It needs a facelift. Yeah. Anyway. So there's that. Uh, let's All do right. another sponsor. In, uh, let's do another sponsor. We'll come okay. back to more. All right, so next sponsor this week. I have all the wrong tabs open. Oh, it's, sorry, I hit you with it. I got you. It is, this is a whoopsie <laughs> from the creation. <laughs> you gave me this one because you wanted mm-hmm. to hear me say this. <laughs> this is a whoopsie is by Andrew Cangelosi and Josh Shipley. From the creators of This is a Taco comes This is a Whoopsie. It's a children's picture book. Uh, it's supposed to be about all the different things moose can do, like leaping and jumping and being really tall. But Whoopsie might not be the right moose for the job. This hilarious tale about a clumsy moose shows that sometimes being a little different can make one great story. Find This is a Whoopsie by Andrew Cangelosi and Josh Shipley in stores October 16th from Cub House, which is an imprint of Lion Forge. And while you're waiting for it, you should probably pick up a copy of This is a Taco <laughs> uh, because it's about Whoopsie's fellow woodland creature, Taco the Squirrel, who is determined to do whatever it takes to eat more tacos. Mooses and squirrels and tacos. I mean, what more do you want? So that again is This is a Whoopsie by Andrew Cangelosi and Josh Shipley. It's coming out October 16th. You can click a link in the show notes or pre-order it wherever you buy your books. Um, so we're going to do one moderate good sign for Barnes & Noble. This might be a moderate second good sign. Hear me out on this. Um, report okay. this week came out from Bloomberg that Amazon is reportedly planning to open, and this is a big number. You know those Amazon Go convenience stores? We talked about these cashless, mm-hmm. you know, little kind of like out of convenience stores, basically, where you, you, there's no cashiers and you pay with your smartphone and blah, blah, blah. There's been a few of them around. Well, according to this report, they are planning, and this is, this is the right number I'm looking at. I double-checked it. As many as 3,000 of these Amigo, Amazon oh. Go stores buy... 2021. It's already That's September so of 2018. Um, so we're looking at three years. So uh, maybe an, they're an, having their robots build them. I really had to double check this one for just the scale. I mean, 
It's There's like nine huge. now. They've opened 10. This is what it says. And they're going to open 50 next year, which would leave, oh, you know, uh, 2,920 to go in 2020 and 2021. I guess is what this Amazon thing to try to do. I thought this was remarkable. They must be getting wonderful feedback and experiences from this here. Um, we talked about in the book riot Slack a little bit yesterday and heard a little con, a little pro. I'm a little gobsmacked by this, I have to say. Um, before, Before we get to the book adjacent stuff, what's your reaction to this? 3,000 is a lot. It's a lot of stores. That's where I'm at. There are only 1,800 targets. Right. And if they had said they were going to... Right. That's real perspective there. There are 1,800 targets and Amazon in less than three years from now intends to have basically almost twice as many (laughs) Amazon goes as targets exist. Um, That's the scale of it is huge. Um, I want to know how they reached this decision. Like what data are they getting from the stores that they have that made them confident enough to do this? Like, is this a well-reasoned decision or is this, uh, like overly ambitious Bezos, Amazon swagger? Like I, I don't know. I think they're usually pretty careful about how they spend their money. Well, they'll kill a thing if it doesn't work. I mean, we see that all the time, right? That's true. They'll kill it. You know, 3,000 stores is also just like, that's so many literal physical things that could go wrong. That's just, it's a ton of variables to take on. I also was kind of jaw on the floor about really like how, but how, where are they going to go? Um, and I really wish for some data about how those, the nine or 10 that currently exist. There's not even nine or 10. I was wrong. They're going to be nine or 10 by the end, by like this, the end of the year. There's two open right now. Two in Seattle. Um, I'm sorry, two in Seattle and one open in Chicago this week. So there's three, like what kind of, I mean, I have so many questions. What kind of data would you have to get from these stores to say, you know what, let's do a thousand times as many. Short circuiting. Again, I'm again, and maybe this report is is just a piece of a maybe kind of, you know, whiteboard slide deck that someone got that said, well, if it goes well, we could do this by the, I don't know, but Bloomberg Mm -hmm. reported. So I'm taking the face value, but that even they're considering at this point 3,000 based on the data they have, I find to be mm-hmm. a God-smacking amount. Now, they say the what they're going after is the CVSs of the world, the Walgreens of the world, the right. 7-Elevens of the world, maybe some grocery Kroger, store Walmart, kinds of Target, things. Yeah. These are small, though. They're, I don't get the Walmart and Target stuff. These aren't that big. They're like the size of kind of – they're like kind of a bigger, nicer uh, – like a Seven Eleven crossed with well, a cozy kind of situation. I don't know. It's it's confusing. Uh, yeah, there's. I think it is confusing. I think they do have that sweet, sweet Amazon data about what yeah. kinds of things people buy. So they might be able to like narrow down, you know, the stuff you're most likely to want when you pop into a place like this and maximize it. Where there's a real um, browsing effect that happens in target, you know, yes. like that the, the, you walk the into target, target to get, tax, right? Like you go in for one yes, thing. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. You, you go to get paper towels, you walk out with 17 things that you didn't even know that you needed, mm-hmm. um, until you found them. And I think these Amazon ones are probably like, this is probably a more targeted thing, but it'll be like, Hey, we are going to have a bunch of the things that you need in one place, you know, and you could come into Amazon go and get those things, like get your essential food items, prepackaged meals, um, some groceries and like, I don't know, maybe the most popular brands of body wash or razor blades or whatever, um, without the wandering of target, but I just 3000, like that's just the scale of it is mind blowing. It is. It's now again, I can see how this could compete with like fast, casual, urban dining kinds of places like your Obon Pans. Like they say that one thing they do very well there is prepackaged foods because it's easy to scan. People are buying lunch and they're on the go and they want a bottle of water mm-hmm. and the profit margin of those things are pretty good. So I guess they could do that from where I sit. I don't find this a particularly interesting market. Like whether I go to uh, an Obon Pan or an Amazon Go for a, a, a bad turkey sandwich when I'm you know downtown. Like, okay, I guess I don't really care about mm-hmm. that. I guess they could also use it to rapidly expand where you can pick up your Amazon stuff. Like, you go pick up your if you go to your local, it gives them just a physical presence to do other to do other kinds of things. I guess 
Now, for the purpose of this show, like we're interested in this writ large, just sort of people who like to, to see what's going on in the world, but notably absent, Amazon bookstores. There's no rumor here about we're going to open 500 Amazon bookstores, or I don't even know what number, like, because there's, like there's more Amazon bookstores open than Amazon Go stores. And there's, I looked at the original Bloomberg report here. I'm, I saw this originally in The Verge, I should say, and I'll have a link in the show notes, but not a whisper, not, a, this, not even a, this is bad for Amazon bookstores, just nothing related to it, which I find really interesting that if they had good data, positive data about the Amazon bookstores, we would have heard more of a move into that area. That this, this suggests something about what their strategy would be. If we have any good signal about these physical things, we're going to go big or at least think about it or leak it or whatever. And that we haven't heard about the Amazon bookstore suggest that the numbers are middling, confusing, maybe not good. Am I reading too much into it? Is that wishful thinking? Is that overanalyzing? What do you think about that? I think it's a fair guess. Um, it, if they feel confident enough based on two Amazon Go stores to start talking about 3,000 <laughs> so of absurd. Them. I'm sorry. I, I can't help it. So crazy. So wild. Like, like if they feel confident enough based on what they've gotten from those two to decide that yeah. they're going to make 3,000 more, um, one would think that I think it's reasonable to assume they've got some interesting data from the Amazon bookstores that exist or some useful data Mm -hmm. from the Amazon bookstores that exist. And that that data is the reason that we're not hearing about really any, we haven't heard anything about Amazon bookstores in quite a while. Um, I can't remember the last story that we got about plans to open them or how they were doing or any of those, any pieces of that, you know, not that we expected to get info about how they were doing because Amazon doesn't talk about how things are doing, but I think it's reasonable to think, I don't know if they'll close them, but it looks like the focus, like how are you going to think about anything else when you have 3000 stores to build in two and a half years? I I was going to say, I mean, I don't, maybe you could put some books in there too. I mean, put Kindles in there. I don't know. Maybe you could do a couple things You could put Kindles, you could put like some best paperback bestsellers. Um, you could do a little, you know, like an aisle or a little stall for them or something. Um, Yeah. Like like Starbucks style. They used to have three or four titles, right. And the same thing. Right. Like to see Amazon go carry some of the big titles of the moment. But uh, I think you're, I think you're right that we can make some, some assumptions about where Amazon's going here and that it's not towards having to having, trying to have several hundred Amazon bookstores. Yeah. I mean, mean, they are a big, they are a go big or go home kind of company. So unless they see huge potential for the Amazon bookstores, there probably won't be a whole bunch more of them. And maybe these will, these will, these will wink out. I don't think it's going to situation where you're going to see, they're not satisfied being pals of like having five good stores that do okay. They want to do either zero or a billion apparently. They should rebrand them to Amazon go big. (laughs) <laughs> then go big. Uh, that's funny. And the delivery service could be go home. Um, let's see. National Book Award long list. I have never been less out of the loop, I think, in my whole life than I am right now for National Book War, uh, long list. Um, I haven't read any of the fiction. Um, well, yeah, you're not on fiction at all this I've read year, zero fiction titles. I have so one of the nonfiction at home but I haven't read it. Mm-hmm. And so there I am. Uh, wait, is that true? Not, yeah, I haven't read, no, I haven't read any, I haven't, I haven't read any of the long listed books that again, look, I've not, never been like, I've read 20 of these kind of persons, people, but I'm really hurting here. Um, have you read any of the fiction long list? I have read Florida by Lauren Groff and American Marriage by Tyari Jones and The Great Believers by Rebecca Mackay. Okay. And I have There There by Tommy Orange on my shelf, but I am finding myself this year like much less capable of enjoying big, heavy, dark, mm. difficult, emotionally difficult literary fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, being a person in 2018 is emotionally difficult enough, and I just can't go there. So I think I'm going to be probably more out of the loop on the award-winning books from 2018 than I have been in previous years as well, because that's just not where I'm going. Yeah, so you know, just from where I sit, I think there there is a really has a really good shot to win it. Um, An American Marriage mm-hmm. too. I'm sure the other books are great. I just haven't heard as much about them. On the nonfiction front, I have Heartland by Sarah Smarsh. It just came out on Tuesday. Congratulations to her. She's a Kansan um, for that. Also, I was pleased to see I bought this book 
I just realized I have this one too. I haven't read it. Uh, the New Negro, The Life of Elaine Locke by Jeffrey Stewart. Elaine Locke was one of the architects, um, elder statespersons of the Harlem Renaissance, which is a personal interest of mine. I'm really interested to see a authoritative biography there. Um, also, I'm really interested in The Tangled Tree, A Radical New History mm-hmm. of Life uh, by David Quammen. Quammen, I'm not exactly sure how to Quammen, say that. Yeah. Uh, so that's there. I mean, there's a link in the show notes. I'm not sure what else to say on the YA side. Oof. The Poet X by Hi. Elizabeth Acevedo seems to have a lot of momentum behind it. Um, mm-hmm. Any of those have you heard more or less about? No, I'm yep. more out of the loop on YA than, than on other things. Uh, yeah, but there they are. Here they are. Here they um, are. I did wow, from- what a good segment we did. <laughs> <laughs> For poetry, I did read Eye Level by oh, did Jenny you? She. Yeah, oh, cool. and I liked that. Yeah. Um, I'm working on my poetry chops. Uh, but the National Book Award long lists are out. Maybe you are better read than we are or you'd like to be and you can peruse. Oh, yeah. And let those. email us if you have a favorite of these things. I guess notably, like I guess in the news news part, this is the first time they've had the long list for the translated prize. So this is the first mm. crop of mm-hmm. long. This is the first long list for the translated prize. I haven't heard of any of them. Uh, is that true? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. Probably true. Um, and those are both. It looks at both. It looks like there's novels, there's fiction and not fiction and poetry. I'll. I think they mash them in. all up together for translated. Because there's one called the Beekeeper, which is rescuing the stolen woman of Iraq, um, which doesn't mm-hmm. sound like what you would subtitle a novel, but who knows? Um, so there's the award. Uh, the National Book Foundation did present a lifetime achievement award to Isabel Allende, um, Medal for Distinguished Contribution, uh, well deserved. I, yes, I, I'm a couple behind. Ayende, she's one I usually read all of them by, but I'm a couple behind. If I if I break the seal for fiction this year, it'll be there there for Tommy Orange. That's the one I've been circling that one a little bit. Um, I'm just not in the mood for fiction. I don't know why. Even though Stephen Johnson just, just told me about how great fiction is for me and how I should read Middlemarch, I was like back in grad <laughs> school days. Did you did you, we t- you did you like that book? Farsighted. You said you did. Not as much as I wanted to. Yeah, right? Anyway, that's a separate thing. Yeah. It was weird. It yeah. was a strange book. Uh, parts of it I really yeah. liked, and then the end is like there's a whole chapter on Middlemarch and decision-making. I'm like, this is, yeah. an, uh, this is, this is a weird thing uh, to get into there. Anyway, that's, that's a... That's a yeah, let's, uh, we're going to come back to the land of big boxes because that's what we're talking about. Big box stores, apparently, this oh, week. Oh, yeah, let's do that. Target, bad job Target, has come under fire from publishers and authors for redacting certain words, including Nazis, transgender, queer, and bondage from the descriptions of a variety of books for sale on its website. Among the titles whose blurbs were uh, scrubbed by the company's Automated Process uh, is a book called Trans, A Quick and Quirky Account of Gender Variability by Jack Halberstam. Double Cross, The True Story of D-Day Spies by Ben McIntyre, and No Property in Man, Slavery and Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding by Sean Willens. The word stripper was bleeped out of the description of Roxane Gay's book, Difficult Women. Um, Publishers Weekly, I know, right, I know, right? Like oh, Publishers sorry. Weekly yeah. reported on this last week. Just make your, no, make all the noises about oh, this. Um, a Target spokeswoman said that the company recently learned that the words were, quote, being inadvertently removed from book descriptions. But then the next thing that she says is, I think, pretty damning. Like most retailers, Target doesn't want profanity and other select words to appear on our website in an effort to ensure a positive shopping experience. If you have programmed your automated process to equate words like transgender or things that are related to history, like Nazis um, or slavery. Uh, I don't get it, man. I don't curse get it. words and profanity. Like mm, you've you pr- you programmed the thing wrong. Like this was a real attempt, I think, on Target's part to do the very passive voice. Mistakes were made. Yes. Thing. Like mistakes were made. It was an automated process. The automated process caught some false positives. We're all so sorry. Well, but you know what? And then no Somebody false sat down. You put queer in the algorithm. That's not a false right. positive. That's a positive. Uh, a person wrote the algorithm. Yeah. A person wrote the algorithm, and that algorithm is bad. Garbage. Um, I'm glad it's th- yeah. I'm glad that this is being dragged out into mm-hmm. the light of day, and that Target is going to have to figure out how to update the sites with descriptions um, that 
were provided to Target by book publishers. Like, what are you doing? If somebody's browsing for books about transgender identity, you're not going to offend them with Mm -hmm. the word transgender or queer in the book description. And if we're talking about like, oh, well, we don't want people to stumble upon these and be offended. Like, you know what? That's not Target's problem. (laughs) Like if, if a customer... Man, I have feelings about this, Jeff. If a customer's mm. kids are poking around shopping for books on Target.com and the customer has to have, like some adult has to have an awkward conversation with their child because the child comes across a book about being queer and doesn't know what it means, like that's on the parents. That's not yeah, on that's Target right. to censor the book description. Yeah. <gasps> and, and the puppets are gay. I mean, just that's what it is. I mean, come on. <laughs> let's, let's, let's not mince any words about... Uh, this this is really, really disappointing. It's really, really insidious in this way. I think you hit the nail on the head is the first mistake here is equating words like transgender, queer, bondage, Nazis with swear words. They're not swear words. They're not easy concepts necessarily. Well, actually, some of them are. Nazis is a fairly simple concept. They're Nazis. They're bad. But what they're trying to do is sanitize their website so no one can yell at them. Mm-hmm. And you know the kinds of people that yell about these things are the same kinds of people that try to get George by Alex Gino taken off of reading lists and all this kind of junk. And this is trying to keep – this is trying to wash your hands of trouble before it happens by silencing and straight washing and whatever, mm-hmm. all the kinds of washing they're trying to do. And what you have on the other side is a corpse of a website that's neutered and inaccurate and damaging to the kinds of things people are looking for. I can understand. Now, look, there's a lot of books out there. Maybe they are trying to keep certain kinds of books off their website. But the thing they're doing is rather than do the hard work of actually making human decisions about these things, they're asking a program to do it and just throwing out all the baby and the bathwater and the kitchen sink and everyone's Mm -hmm. clothes and everything else at the same time. Rather than do the hard thing, Rather than deal with the hard questions or solve the hard problem, they took the easiest patch, which is to you know, automate do do a, do a co- control F and replace with these words, and think they're going to get away with it, and they should be dragged, and whoever did this should be fired. I mean, I think that's yeah, as I simple agree. as anything else with this. I don't. There's not even the more interesting than that. What else is there to say about? No, this? it's not. It's not complicated. No, it's very straightforward. Somebody decided exactly. We're going to try to prevent people from getting mad at us. Um, Let's decide which words people think are inappropriate. And along with curse words, they picked transgender, queer, bondage, Nazis, all very real things about Mm -hmm. living in the real world. And I completely agree. Whoever sat in these meetings and decided that this was the way to go um, has some real soul searching to do about equating identities of real humans with being inappropriate, um, you know, and really above and beyond that soul searching. I do think somebody should get fired for this. doesn't want profanity and other select words to appear on our website. I mean, so either, so which of these people do you want to be? Do you want me to say that queer is profane or that you don't want the word queer on your website? Cause either one of those, you got some splaining to do either one. I don't know which of those you want to be actually, um, if forced to choose, I would say actually, I didn't do this and you don't have to make me choose, but an oversight, <laughs> she said, removing the words was an oversight on our port and that they should be included. We are working to update our site with descriptions that were provided. So it sounds like we'll see. Um, mm-hmm. You know what? I'm going to make an omnifocus task for myself. I want to go check this here in a couple of weeks and see how we're doing on the books that they're mentioning, especially. Ooh, um, I like this to see. So let's go, go check our work. Um, yeah. If you feel like yelling at your target, send them an email. Um, or something like that. I think you wouldn't be wrong to do that right there. Let's do an ad and a couple more stories to wrap up the show. If you enjoy learning and diving deep into fascinating stories, you'll love The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus gives you unlimited access to thousands of videos in virtually any category from the world's top experts. With The Great Courses Plus app, you can watch videos or stream the audio no matter where you are or what you're doing. Brush up on world history on the commute home or explore the solar system while taking a walk. 
a great course. Plus, it's a wonderful course that we recommend called the Heroes and Legends, the most influential characters of literature. This is right in my wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. It offers a fascinating look at the power of great literary heroes from Don Quixote to Sherlock Holmes to others and how they reflect the history, values, and cultural change during this time. I listened to the Don Quixote episode. I'm a bit of a Don Quixote nerd. Um, I don't know what else to say about it. You could get lost. I mean, people have gotten lost in the Don Quixote thing. Don Quixote is one of those characters that's more interesting than the book in which he appears. The character and the author's relationship is more interesting than the book. Um, I've taught Don Quixote before. I could never get my students quite to understand what was so nerdy about it, but I think this episode actually does a pretty good job of showing why Don Quixote is so interesting and so influential in the history of the novel. Um, really good way to enter into canonical works and literary ideas by focusing on a theory, uh, a character and interest in there. I've taught Don Quixote in not a dissimilar context, so I was really happy to see this one here. This is the perfect course to get started with the Great Courses Plus. I think you don't even have to re- have read the book, frankly. You don't have to have read Sherlock Holmes or Don Quixote to find these interesting, I think. Um, check out any of their fantastic lectures. They're giving away to they're giving today's listeners a free trial with unlimited access to enjoy their entire library only at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash book riot. Sign up for your free trial now at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash book riot. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. Okay. All right. Should we go to other things we have side eye for? Because now I'm just all fired up. <laughs> You've been talking about this Pennsylvania story? Yeah. I do. I think this is one of those things that's just important to talk about. Yeah, um, I know less about this than I'd like to. Um, though I've heard we've we've covered stories some like this in the past. So this is the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections is planning to ban free book donations to inmates by mail, claiming that this is a primary avenue for drugs to enter prisons. The move also coincides, though, with renewed push to get prisoners buying into pricey ebook system that offers low end tablets for 150 bucks and ebooks no cheaper than three bucks a read. <sighs> Effective immediately, the DOC will begin to transition to ebooks coupled with a bolstered DOC library system featuring centralized purchasing and ordering process. No books or publications will be shipped directly to an inmate. We will no longer accept books donated directly to individual inmates. It seems to me like there's like there's like one hand isn't talking to the other, right? Because okay, mm-hmm. I could see how maybe mailing individual books to individual inmates could I know very little about the mailing system, how these things work. My, my principal knowledge about prison libraries comes from the Shawshank Redemption, so it might not be accurate and or up to date. <laughs> but I don't think not letting people mail it to individual prisoners requires them to then buy into these these money-making schemes. Yeah. Uh, to sell. There's, I don't know. Am I wrong about that? I think I don't think you're wrong. I think the most generous reading would be um, that – that both things are true, that prisoners use this, like the most generous reading, I guess, in favor of the Department of Corrections, uh, which is not a side I really want to take, um, would be that it's true that prisoners have had people smuggle drugs to them in by donating individual yeah. books and also that this other system is available. But I don't... Right. I don't think that these are actually... Uh, that, like they're, I don't think they're unrelated. Um the timing of this, I don't think is unrelated. First of all, are things that are shipped into prisons not like opened and searched? Like, I, I, I don't believe, know. Like, I have no I, idea. All of my knowledge of th- shipping things into prisons is also based on pop culture, but I would believe that like a package you're sending to a prisoner could reasonably, you could reasonably expect it to be opened and searched. Like, you know, tucking weed into a hollowed out book is probably not the sneakiest thing uh, in, in that situation. But this like, well, you can't donate free books to them, but they, they can buy a tablet for $150 and eBooks no cheaper than $3 a read. Like, I don't know how much reading you've done about the pay rates for like the amount of money that prisoners earn if they're even allowed to, you know, perform labor uh, in prison. It's not much. It would take many, many hours to purchase this $150 tablet and to purchase $3 eBooks to read on it when you're not trying to purchase other essential things that you need for your life, like soap. Uh, I think that this is what for-profit prisons look like. Yeah, um, that's and right. trying to and and trying to foist it or explain it away with like, well, prisoners use books to smuggle in drugs. Like You could then 
if your real concern was just the smuggling, you don't have to introduce this expensive ebook scheme. No. You can you can say, well, we only take donations from like nonprofit groups, you know, right. like bulk donations from nonprofit groups. But like, you know, so donated books could still come in. They just couldn't come from individuals like shipping things into their friends, um, which could contain contraband. I don't think that the contraband is the primary concern here. I think that the contraband is a nice cover for a way to make a rule that takes away something from prisoners. And if the prisoners want access to that thing, and in case this case it's books, they would need to spend a bunch of money they very likely don't have that would mm-hmm. just go right back into the prison system. I have so many questions here, um, but that's the, that's the main story. Um, and if you uh, live in Pennsylvania, especially, and you have a legislator, elected person you'd mm-hmm. like to speak with, the Pennsylvania ACLU and Pittsburgh-based abolitionist law center have sued the DOC successfully in the past and said they are evaluating the situation. Um, this feels like a scam to me. Or, yeah, mm-hmm. a scam is wrong. I mean, it's, it feels like a racket. You know, they're, they're cutting yeah. off one supply to drum up demand for this other thing. Um, and that's too bad. I don't. I, I think this is uncool in a fundamental way. Uh, one more. Should we do one more? Where do you want to go with the last one? Sure. You Where pick. You me. You pick. Your hmm. turn. You made me pick last week. Let's do this. Um, interesting. I think we talked about a similar study before, but you know, replicability is a big buzzword. So it's nice to see other studies that do the same thing. <laughs> According to a study published Wednesday by the National Endowment for the Arts, poetry reading is on the rise while American interest in fiction has fallen. The report called U.S. Trends in Arts Attendance and Literary Reading, 2007-2017, found the percentage of adults reading fiction dropped from 45.2% to 41.8%, while poetry reading increased from 67 to 11.7%, which is pretty big in terms of a relative percentage. Um, they say, mm-hmm. they mentioned, which I think the last time we talked about a study like this didn't, Rupi Kaur, uh, poetry sales have increased in recent years. So there's a moment going on here. So this is not, not all of a sudden like people are picking up like Robert Frost randomly. Like there's right. real difference in what's being available, you know, to, to people. Um, the report found that reading for leisure has fallen slightly with 52.7% of adults reading a book not required by school or work compared to 54.6% in 2012. A 2% drop over eight years. We've said, I've made this similar, like think of everything that's changed in the last eight years around mm-hmm. technology and the ability to, what you can do with your leisure time. I think that's holding up pretty well. That's my sense of it. The I, NEAC or, I mean, it's 2% uh, with people reading more poetry like, do you care that uh, fiction reading is down 4% while poetry reading is up 5%? No, I mean, because especially in the hierarchy, the like in the hierarchy of highbrowness, poetry yes. comes above fiction. That's so right. Thank you very much for that. Yes. If you're doing the snot, like the lit snob interpretation here, it should be like, yay, more people are reading poetry. <laughs> Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> we are we're getting smarter, more of us are reading poetry. Mm-hmm. The one big question I had here is how much of the increase in poetry is probably directly attributable to Rupi Kaur by herself. It could like, be all of it, right? I mean, right, she like, sold millions uh, more of More than copies. a millions of copies like between her and oh, who's that? The dude, um, Atticus, oh, the yes. um, anonymous Instagram poet. Um, between her and Atticus, like it's probably it's probably mostly them. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, again, and some of the law, small numbers, like if you come in and you sell a whole bunch, you can move the needle. But move the needle, it did. Um, I'm encouraged by 52.7% mm-hmm. to 54.6%. Uh, I mean, I, I think that's okay. I mean, do I wish it was higher? Yeah. Do I wish we'd go to 54? But I think as these things shake out, I think I think reading has taken most of the body blow it's going to take for the foreseeable future. Now, once AR and VR become real things, who knows? Well, call mm-hmm. me again when we're all wearing glasses where we can play. I don't know. Um, I don't even know what... You, now I'm feeling uncomfortable already, <laughs> and I'm trying to get out of this gracefully, and it's just not going to happen. But for now, let's I'll say let's say that things are down a little, but in the world we live in where there's so much that you can do uh, at home you know, with a device in your hands that's not reading... I'll take this. I'll, I would have I, signed for this in 2012. Half. It's right? more than half of people are still reading for leisure at all. And that's, I think that's pretty good. Yeah, let me put it this way. In 2012, if you said, okay, 54.6 now read for leisure, 
we'll offer you 52.7% six years from now. Would you sign for that? Knowing that the Netflixes of the world, and I mean, think of what didn't exist and all the streaming services and whatever else. Right, right, right. That knowing that it was going to exist, I'm going to give you foreknowledge of those things in 2012. Would you sign for 52.7%? I would. I would have signed for it. I would say, I'll take it right I would now. totally take it. Same. Yeah. Yep. Is that our show? I think it's our show. What do we want Kids are going to be all right. What do, we want, what, do we, what do we want people to tell us? Oh, what do we want people Columbia, to tell us? Columbia, Maryland. What if do you've you been think to the about- Barnes & Noble store. If, you, if that new one, and, if anyone's there, go and tell us about it. And what do you think about 3,000 Amazon Go stores? Yeah, if you've been, I don't, we were talking to people in, in the Book Riot Slack that have been, but I don't think we've had direct feedback. So I guess really if you live in Seattle or you happen to have gone to an Amazon Go Chicago the last two days, you're eligible to tell us about your Amazon Go experience. I, I, boy, a lot of shocking, a lot of weird, I'm agog about that, the Target thing, the prison library thing. I'm just, I'm having a hard time Ooh, articulating. I'm going to do some Googling, but if you know things about Bob Woodward's fear advance, oh, I would birdies. like to know that. I have a feeling there's not many birdies in that particular uh, aviary. I don't think they don't let them out. <laughs> Probably R- not. Rare bird protected species. <laughs> Thanks so much, you guys, for listening to the show. Rebecca, we'll talk to you next week. Have a good one. <laughs>